0: With Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP.
1: Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm
2: Buzz Eisenberg.
1: And yesterday was indeed an historic day, the beginning of the prosecution against Donald Trump on four serious charges involving his attempts to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. With us today. To discuss the case and the potential of defense is attorney David Hoos, who is a partner in the Northampton-based law firm of Sasson Turnbull Ryan and Hoos. He is a distinguished and very experienced criminal defense attorney. <clears throat> he has tried many, many federal and state cases, including some eighteen capital cases, death penalty cases. David Hoos, thank you so much for joining us today. I would appreciate your overview to begin, of the charges brought against Donald Trump, then I want to ask you and we want to ask you about the potential defenses and how the charges are framed and so on. But let's start with, what are the charges against Donald Trump?
3: Yeah, so there are uh, four. It's a four-count indictment, and uh, many people have commented that it's sort of notable for what's not in there. Everybody was looking for this seditious conspiracy, conspiracy to overthrow the government, and I think the, the government thought that that was a little bit too much of a hot button and decided not to uh, charge that. They didn't charge that. Uh, Jack
1: Smith didn't charge that. And he didn't charge him with inciting the riot on January 6th either.
3: Exactly. I think that this was was a a very artfully uh, thought out uh, indictment by a a, a prosecutor who obviously very much knows what he's doing. So three of the four charges are conspiracies – and conspiracy, for, uh, uh, for the non-lawyers here, is, is really very simple to understand. Conspiracy is nothing more than an agreement to do something illegal. Now, um, his count one charges uh, uh, a conspiracy to defraud the United States, uh, and, and that is charged under Section 371, which is the general uh, conspiracy uh, statute uh that, that, that we, uh, all of us uh, who have practiced in the federal court, we see this charge all the time. Um, count two uh, is charged under Section 1512, which is in general. There, it, it's it's a 10 or 12 subsection statute. but the the thrust of it is uh, um, conduct that intimidates uh, witnesses, jurors, or attempts to interfere with official, uh, proceedings uh, in, in, in the kinds of cases that, that I've had, it, it's usually uh, under Section A, he's charged under subsection K. The ones I've done are usually homicides to you know, silence a witness or uh, something like that. But that's but again, the thrust of the, the statute is just an agreement. Uh, um, and I should add that under conspiracy law, there has to be proof of one overt act that one of the co-conspirators actually did something in furtherance of the conspiracy. Right, but that overt act can be something that's perfectly legal, and it doesn't
1: have to be anything very significant, and it only has to be done by one of the co-conspirators, and the other ones
3: don't even have to know about it. Exactly. Uh, uh, the, The conspiracy law, and this is beyond the scope of this conversation, is extraordinarily broad. Uh, I mean, any uh, federal criminal defense lawyer can tell you of conspiracies where. Uh, well, I've had clients come to me. How can I be conspiring uh, with people that I don't even know? Well, under federal law, you can. Um, and so the 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 one that's interesting to me is count three, which is the only one that is not a conspiracy. Actually, charges. That he obstructed and attempted to obstruct an, an official uh, proceeding, and uh, that official proceeding was the uh, att- the, the certification of the uh, uh, election uh, by the vice president, um, and uh, and then last, of course, uh, 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 the the one that is is again maybe the most controversial is the conspiracy against uh, rights. Uh, as many commentators have pointed out, this stems from the post-Civil War. Uh, it was known as the Ku Klux Klan Act uh, to prohibit people from interfering with people exercising their federal uh, rights. In this case, the right to vote and the right to have their vote counted. Um, so that's uh, that's a synopsis of, of what he's facing.
1: Okay. What do you make of the fact that the co-conspirators are not named? although they're descri- what they did is described, they're not named and they're not indicted. What do you make of that?
3: Well, this is, this is really an interesting question uh, uh, for me as a lawyer, and it was so interesting that I actually discussed it with a few friends who are current and former assistant U.S. attorneys just to get their thoughts on it. And uh, I think we all agree uh, uh, that the, the, that these people – uh, when you read in the indictment what they did, they clearly committed crimes. Uh, and I don't think any of us think that they're going to get a pass. They're going to be charged at some point, in my opinion. I think that what's going on here is that Smith knew that he's going to be pressured uh, uh, for time that the defendants are going uh, to that the defendant is going to claim. I don't have time. Uh, uh, to prepare, and that if he comes into court with, with seven co-defendants, that problem just multiplies itself. So I think the number one concern here was keeping things simple, no clutter in the indictment. And I have to say, say this, uh, the, a secondary concern is, uh, or a secondary reason is to lay out for the uh, unindicted co-conspirators what we've got on you, and to give them an opportunity to throw up their hands and say, all right, you got me, I'll come in, I'll cooperate. It it In reading this indictment, it reminded me of something that happens, well, I won't say frequently, but has happened to me personally and uh, to many others. When the government thinks they've got you, and you got a client who's just in denial, they will say, let me tell you what we're going to do. We're going to reverse proffer. We're going to tell you what our case is so you can decide if you really want to try to fight this. So it, in reading the the detail here about what they've got on each of these six people, it really reminded me of, uh, of a reverse proffer. Okay, stop
1: there for a second. Yeah. Tell our listener what's a proffer and why it matters, okay. and then that will make clear what a reverse proffer is.
3: Yeah, so a, a, a proffer in, is something that 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 does not happen very often in a state uh, court, and I should remind your listeners that ninety-eight percent of crimes are prosecuted in state court. In federal court, proffers are, uh, are are quite common. Um, uh, in, in other words, when typically the way an investigation uh, will begin, or at least the part that we know about, we on the defense side is, your client will get a grand jury subpoena or a target letter, uh, and at that point it tells you we want you to testify the grand jury. What happens then is, is if it if they bring that letter to me, I call the prosecutor and I say. First question, is my client a target of this grand jury? Usually the answer is your client is a subject of the grand jury, meaning that he could become a target, but at the moment, the crosshairs are not focused on them. And very often the next step of the discussion is, would your client like to proffer? Would he like to come in and tell us what he knows about these crimes? And we, we then they will issue you what's a standard proffer letter, which basically says, come in, tell us what you know. We promise we will not use anything you say against us unless you lie. Against
1: you, the potential defendant. Against
3: against you, the potential defendant. uh, Unless you lie or unless you take your case to trial and say something contrary to what you've told us. So that's a proffer. And in some situations... Stop there. Yeah, and the
1: reason a defendant would make a proffer to the government before they are even charged is... Seeking
3: leniency. Uh, and, and, and so the proffer can result in, okay, we hear what you're saying. Are you willing to testify against defendant X, Y, and Z... And then it can go into uh, an immunity agreement, which is really beyond the scope of this conversation. In other words,
1: we, you, if you agree to make that information, testimony, and evidence yep. available at the trial against uh, defendant X, we won't prosecute you. Yes,
3: uh, yes. Uh, although sometimes it, it, it's not as good as that for the defendant. In other words, to say, okay, you know, you, we, we appreciate you've come in, you've owned up to what you did. And in exchange for that, we will recommend only... A year in custody, or whatever.
2: So, Attorney David Hoos, let's circle back to a reverse proffer. Sure. What were you saying about a reverse proffer? Yeah.
3: So, so when 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 on occasion, when uh, I've been invited to come in with my client and proffer, my client says, "Nah, I'm not interested. I'm not going to go in and talk to them." They will. The government will say, "Okay, why don't you come in?" and sit down anyway, and we will do a reverse proffer. And they will sit down, and they will lay out for you exactly what we've got on you. They will show you documents. They will uh, give you summaries of what witnesses are saying about you, all in an effort to make you feel uh, that it is hopeless to fight this. You should come in and cooperate. Um, And this is, again, this is very much... Um, unique to federal uh, 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 practice, Uh, there is really, in in almost every case, there's really a push to get things resolved short of trial. And what you're saying,
1: David Hoos, is that what the government has done by creating what is called a speaking indictment, that is an indictment that lays out the facts, is essentially put out for everyone to see, and most specifically, those six co-conspirators what the government's got on them, and in that regard, I take it you think this indictment, just with regard to that purpose, is enormously successful.
3: You know, I think it is. I, I thought that there, I thought it was very convincing. It was very persuasive. I, I was very surprised to read this morning uh, that Bill Barr described it as a very sparse indictment. Boy, I I, the people that I've talked with, we thought just the opposite. Wow, you know, we're accustomed speaking indictments, and for the benefit of your listeners, speaking indictments just means that there's kind of they kind of put some meat on the bones of the allegations. In state court indictments, they're 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 usually like one sentence. You know, the defendant did assault and beat so and so, resulting in injury. Uh, in federal court, it's much more common for there to be a little bit more of an explanation. Speaking indictment just means that there's a lot more explanation and, and, and meat on the bones of the allegations here. And the people that I discussed this with, uh, and myself, we were all of a mindset that, um, wow, this is this is a lot of uh, detail. Uh,
2: Do you think, David, who's uh, based on your experience that uh, the government, that Jack Smith, the special counsel, has given, has been in communication with each of these unindicted co-conspirators to basically say a little bit more than what we saw in the speaking indictment? That is, this is what we've got on you to just sort of give them the equivalent of a proffer, a reverse proffer
3: at this point. Well, some of those people may have already proffered, uh, not the uh, unindicted co conspirators, but but the people that are uh, uh,
2: Mark Meadows,
3: kind of. People. Yeah, or the Rusty Bowers. You know, I mean, they, these people have probably voluntarily, they probably didn't have to proffer because they were not targets of the grand jury. And, and, and they probably came in and just agreed to be interviewed. Um, so, yeah, I think the answer to your question is yes, but I, I think there's probably a lot more that much I do agree with Bill Barr, who said that uh, yesterday, too. He said, I think they've got a lot more that, he, that he's not disclosing at this point. And that, that would you know, be consistent with my experience.
1: Okay. David Hoos, I think what we're going to do now is take a break. Here's the question I'm going to ask on the other side. What's the defense? Okay. We'll be right back.
4: Every day together,
5: always. I really feel
6: that I'm losing.
0: My More talk the talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP.
6: I'm Lisa Riley. Join me every Saturday at 9.30 a.m. here on WHMP as we share stories that shine a light on justice-involved individuals or just underdogs in the game of life, their struggles, their successes, and the many resources and opportunities available for those who are hustling to carve a new path and prove that failure isn't final. So unlock your future, rewrite your story. This is The Hustler Files
7: what's cooking at river valley co-op here's avid eater grocery shopper and co-op member bill newman
1: ah summer in new england and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries basil and tomatoes an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables in the co-op meat department local chicken from reed farm house-made brats sausage lots of grilling ideas and in the co-op cheese department get fresh mozzarella
8: for your caprese salad
5: River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome.
8: Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience in a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton.
5: Fort Hill Collision Services will love it too. So for the European touch for your foreign or domestic vehicle, trust the experts at Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9 in Amherst.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
1: We continue our conversation with Northampton-based attorney David Hoos, a partner in the firm of Sasson Turnbull Ryan and Hoos, distinguished and very experienced criminal defense attorney. We were talking during the break, David, about what's the defense? Is the First Amendment a defense? Is my lawyer told me I was right? Is that a defense? Talk to us.
3: Yeah, I mean, those are the two things that have been thrown out uh, most frequently by the, the talking heads uh, on TV. So, so let's talk about uh, free speech first. I mean, everyone acknowledges that Donald Trump had the right, he, and he continues to have the right to say, I won the election. Uh, he can, cont- he has the right to lie about it. Um, and
1: saying I won the election is shorthand for if they had counted all the votes the way they were supposed to be counted,
3: I would have won the election. Yeah, it, it, I, I mean, the free speech gives him uh, a, a lot of uh, protection. What it doesn't give him protection from is you can't say – I have a First Amendment right to conspire with other people to do something illegal, and and um, you know obviously the First Amendment protects speech; it does not protect uh, violent action of the uh, of the sort that took place. It does not protect you from uh, disrupting uh, a uh, federal proceeding. What's that famous line? I think it's I think it's uh, uh, from Holmes uh, who said, you right. To, you you have the right to swing your fist, but it ends at the tip of my nose." Um, you know. So so the point being that uh, free speech uh, is uh, uh, is curtailed at some point when it turns to action or to illegal uh, conduct. In this case, conspiracy. The other thing that's been thrown around is uh, advice of counsel. I was just ad- uh, relying on advice of counsel. Uh, in this case, uh, uh, co-conspirator number two, John uh, Eastman, uh, who has this theory that most people describe as crazy that the, the uh, vice president had the authority to uh, refuse to certify the election. Well, I think that, that uh, the, the problem with that Is that even if Trump says, look, I was just following advice of counsel, the advice of counsel is only that I think you've got a ground to claim uh, uh, that this election was uh, – that that the the vice president has the authority to set aside this election. I'm quite sure that he's crazy as Eastman uh, is. I'm sure that he didn't say, my advice is you should uh, uh, charge the the Capitol – and intent, and try to interfere with the certification process that you should use force to stop this. I don't want to get too weedy, uh,
2: David Hughes, but this is my understanding. Eastman said, look, if we could just get the states to appoint an alternative panel of electors, yeah. then it would be sent back to the legislatures of those states, and that's perfectly legal to have the legislature because the Constitution says yeah. each state shall determine the electors in the way that it deems... Yeah. necessary. And that's what Eastman's advice was to Trump, even though every other lawyer, officialdom lawyer right. told him, no, you lost the election. what yeah. What say you about relying on that advice?
3: Well, I again, I don't think that that gives you the the right to to interfere with the certification process by unlawful means. And I think that that the detail that that uh, the indictment goes into, Laying it out state by state by state as to what he knew, and we should and,
1: we should interrupt there. We're talking about the seven swing states, and they're yes. specifically mentioned and detailed in the indictment what Trump and his team did to try to reverse the results in those seven states,
3: and what they were told by officials in each of those states which is that there was no fraud, that they couldn't find any fraud. And many of these were people that were Trump supporters, people that voted for Trump and just said, it's not there. We don't have that. Um, So that raises, uh, in in response to this advice of counsel uh, um, line of defense, it raises in my mind something that we encounter as federal criminal defense lawyers all the time and that is the concept of willful blindness in other words when when the government has to prove intent as they do in this case and you have a defendant who says well i i really thought i did win the election i still think i uh, i won the election um the government is entitled to counter that by getting the jury instructed on the concept of willful blindness. And what that means in this context, and this is why it's laid out in such detail in the indictment, is that, that even his closest advisors were telling him he lost the election. It is not legitimate to say, I really believed it when the evidence is overwhelming that you were told repeatedly that there is no uh, such evidence you, you 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 are uh being willfully blind to the fact that you lost the election and i think that that's how that is going to shake out uh at trial they're going to have a litany of witnesses who are going to say yeah i told him there there is no fraud we couldn't find any we looked for it um, and he chose to believe uh, otherwise anyway. That, to me, is classic willful blindness.
1: The question of timing is front and center. When will this case go to trial? If you look at this from an objective point of view, leaving aside for a moment the calendar that is in place for the primaries in the general election, if that was not a consideration, how long would it take normally for a case like this, I don't understand. It's it's unique in many ways. How long would it take for the pre-trial proceedings to go on and for counsel to get ready? When would it go to trial?
3: Well, you 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 hit on the most important thing. Is is there? It's unique. There is nothing to compare it to. So so I would say in a normal, I mean, everything is so slow these days because of the volume of forensic evidence. Uh, it, cases take much longer to get to trial than they used to probably would be two to three years. On the other hand, the Federal Speedy Trial Act uh, gives defendants a right to a trial within 70 days. And um, uh, it, and again, this case is unique and I think that this judge is going to set a trial date probably sometime uh, next summer and, and again, because it's unique, he's gonna, uh, uh, she is going to say, look, this is a defendant that has seemingly unlimited assets. His uh, lawyers uh, don't have to say, well, gee, Judge, I have a trial next month that's going to tie me up. or uh, they, they, He's got a huge legal defense team. And um, I, I think that uh, there, there is, of course, the national interest in getting this resolved. And I think this judge is going to set some really firm uh, uh, timelines to get this case to trial next summer.
1: What do you think about the proposal that this trial be televised?
3: You know, I am generally opposed to TV in the courtroom. Uh, uh, I, I And I, I'm going to punt on that because I haven't thought it through yet. I mean, I understand the argument that there... This is uh, a, a, a trial of unprecedented national importance and interest to the public. I'm generally opposed to it because I think it causes grandstanding and uh, people to behave in ways that they don't believe when they're behave when they're not cameras in the courtroom. So... Um,
9: Bill, this is Dan, I have a question. Um, can Trump fire his lawyers right before trial and then have to say, well, I have to go and, and hire a new team and, and try to do that maybe all the way until November until he, you know, in his mind, hopefully wins the presidency and can pardon
1: himself.
3: Yeah. I I, I mean, once you file an appearance uh, in in the case. Once the
1: defense lawyer files an appearance right, saying, I appear, I represent right, the defendant.
3: I, and says, I represent the defendant. The judge has control over that. So, so this judge is not going to allow that to happen. Um, Uh, And, and, um, you know, I I, I think that it's possible that he may try to do that uh, Or that his lawyers may try to do that They may, may try to go in and say, look, I just can't work with this guy But, I mean, I think anybody who still is willing to represent Donald Trump Knows perfectly well that this guy is impossible to deal with And in many cases, as a defense lawyer, it's easy because you don't have to worry about negotiating anything. He's not going to negotiate anything. He's going to go to trial, uh, and um, you know he's going to. If he goes down, it's going to be kicking and screaming uh, all the way.
9: And one last uh, follow-up here: um, Does does a president end up getting sentenced by a ju- former president, getting sentenced by a judge to jail time, and would that do anything to his presidential campaigns? From my understanding, no. But
3: yeah, I I, I mean that that's. It unprecedented. Kind of, yeah, it's unfair it,
9: question. It, I mean, it's there's nothing to base it off and, of. But. And,
3: and it's uh, you know more of it almost more of a political question than a than a a, a legal question. Could he go to jail? Of course, he could go to jail. Should he go to jail? You know, again.
9: But the, I thought, you know, the legal law should be: no, you you committed these crimes, you will get sentenced to this. There's there's you know suggestions, I guess, of twenty years, five years on a lot of these conspiracy charges or, or whatever it is. It's do you do that to a former president?
3: Yeah. Well, this this judge is going to follow the letter of the law. We have sentencing guidelines in the federal court, and this judge is going, if he's convicted, this judge is going to have the guidelines calculated, and the calculations will come down to a number of months.
9: Could he not, I'm sorry, could he not go to jail, file an appeal, and stay uh, out of jail until the appeals are are followed through?
3: The answer is he could, um, and it used to be the norm that uh, federal defendants who took an appeal were allowed to remain free. It is no longer the norm, Um, and that would be an interesting question. Certainly, if he is convicted, he certainly will appeal, and his lawyers will certainly move for release uh, uh, pending the appeal, and that's going to be a real tough call for the judge, and it probably is going to come down to... What her practice and what the practice has been in the DC circuits. When I first started, it was routine that if you just said, I appeal, again, very different from state court, uh, if you said, I'm taking an appeal, and you were out, I'd say, okay, you remain out until your appeal is done, um, that is no longer uh, routine.
2: You know, David, this is, you're so insightful and this is so informative. We're going to have to exploit your kindness and have you back as. This case continues to come. But, um, you know, what I really want to do is what Bill suggested before our last break, which is to talk about if you were defending Donald Trump, dot, dot, dot. I'd love to continue that conversation. (laughs) We'll be
1: right back.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
10: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The Amherst Pelham Education Association is renewing its appeal for the school committee to launch an investigation into Superintendent Michael Morris. The committee issued a statement saying while the APEA supports an impartial and independent investigation into the Title IX complaint around anti-LGBTQA issues at Amherst Regional Middle School, the union is calling for a separate inquiry into the failures of Dr. Michael Morris's leadership. Morris, meanwhile, had outlined a plan to address these issues. However, the committee says the issue lies with the administration's lack of responsiveness and is rejecting the implication that anti-LGBTQ bias is systemic within the school. After serving almost 10 years in prison, Daniel Tompkins of Orange may have his convictions overturned due to ineffective legal counsel. Tompkins was convicted of causing a vehicle crash in Bernardston in 2007 that resulted in the deaths of 21-year-old Heather Buffum and 25-year-old Melissa Duff. However, on July 27th, a judge granted a new trial. The Northwestern DA's office has filed an appeal. The pre-application period for Community Preservation Act funds in Greenfield is now open. The Preservation Committee will be allocating approximately $300,000 for projects that enhance affordable housing, historic preservation, and outdoor recreation open space. Project proposals need to be in by September 15th. From there, eligible projects will need to submit complete applications by November 15th.
11: Sun cloud mixed today, chance for showers in the morning and then showers and thunderstorms likely in the afternoon. In fact, prime time for any heavy downpours would be 3 p.m. to 8 p.m. Watch out for flooding and damaging wind, a high of 76 to 80. Evening showers, then clearing out overnight, a low of 58 to 64. Mostly sunny tomorrow, a high of 80 to 84. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP.
12: I'm not sure if opposites attract, but most couples differ greatly in their views about household finances. I'm Francis Rayum, The Money Doctor, with Hug Your Money. Money is a very volatile topic, and most seem to either argue about it or rarely discuss it. A sort of division of labor emerges, one partner becoming the steward of household finances, the other less directly involved. This arrangement may work until a stressor is introduced—college expenses, budgeting issues, impending retirement, etc. That's when sparks can fly. Each person's perspective is quite different, and it's likely only a short-term solution, if any, will arise. The Hug Plan presents an easy-to-follow, long-term solution that helps get both partners on the same page, alleviating stress and inspiring them to manage their finances successfully. I'm Francis Ray on The Money Doctor. We now offer advanced tools and financial coaching using our patented system, all under one umbrella. For more information and to schedule your free consultation, visit our website at hugyourmoney.com. Fitting
13: in matters. Not feeling left out, it's only natural, especially in high school. At the Hartsbrook School in Hadley, fitting in doesn't mean conforming. It just means a sense of belonging. If you're into sports or into writing, if you're into arts or into math, if you're into nature or into technology, you can thrive at the Hartsbrook School. Childhood gives way to adolescence and you want to explore nearly every new thing you encounter or master one thing. Hartsbrook education gives you time to breathe and focus. Learning is unhurried and intentional and never institutionalized. Subjects are often integrated, studying history through the lens of architecture, for example, or social studies by working for food justice. Hartsbrook prepares you to look the world in the eye and take responsibility for yourself and your community. The Hartsbrook School on a 55-acre campus in Hadley. New students welcome in any grade. Schedule a visit on the Hartsbrook School website. call or email the admissions office.
1: This is our regular time with Max Page, who is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, who has with him and us today the vice president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association as well. We want to ask them both about the state budget, how it will affect education in Massachusetts. And then we want to get to this crucial thing that has not received very much publicity yet, but is going to starting now, which is ballot questions we are going to face probably next year. So let's start with the budget, but perhaps you should introduce us to your vice president, Mr. President.
14: I would be glad to. Good morning, Bill. Yes, I'm very pleased to have my vice president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, deb mccarthy on with us she's been on the before and she will be in a minute talking about um our uh mcas ballot issue good morning deb
4: good morning max and everybody else uh, an honor to be here thank you
14: so lickety split bill i think we'll just name that the state budget that is a, was of course a month late and includes all kinds of uh, was a frustrating process produce some outstanding gains for public education. This is the first budget since we passed the fair share amendment, the so-called millionaire's tax last November. So here we are seeing the fruits of a decade of effort, an incredible um, effort by our own, own members and the and the coalition of the Raise Up Massachusetts a coalition. And what we're seeing very briefly is the, some of the, the largest investments in public education in our history. Um, free universal free lunches 150 million dollars to improve and and green our school and college buildings and I should also say since Buzz and I spoke last week about the importance of community college this includes um, tuition basically making tuition and fees free for community college students over the age of 25 and includes funds to prepare for truly free tuition and fees uh, uh, for all community college students starting in the fall of 2024. That's just the tip of the iceberg of what we won in this budget. Um, But I think this shows what what was intended when we began this process of trying to ask the very, very wealthiest to spend a little bit more for our public schools and colleges. I'm not even talking about mentioning the half a billion dollars. To incru- include, improve regional transportation, the MBTA, our roads and bridges.
1: Okay, Max, that was not the briefest explanation. Quick, this is a yes or no. Is this money going for both higher education and K through 12? Absolutely. Okay, let's talk about more ballot initiatives because the MTA, the Mass Teachers Association, is very invested in getting a question on the ballot, at least one. And maybe we should turn to your Vice President, Deb McCarthy, and ask her what that is. Deb McCarthy, Vice President of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. A ballot question for 2024. That that initiative will have to go full steam ahead. Now, tell us what it is, why it is, and what's happening. Please, Deb.
4: So, uh, thank you. Uh, This weekend, uh, our board will be taking a vote to endorse the ballot initiative uh, that was filed. The initiative, the language is... Concise. It calls for the removal of a one-time test score tied to the competency requirements of a high school diploma. Uh, the MCAS will still be given. That's a federal requirement, but no longer will we be harming students who's had their high school diploma reduced to the tie-in of a one-time test score.
1: So to explain to our listeners, if a Student can't pass MCAS, which is supposed to measure whether the person has, the person, the student, the 10th grader has achieved at least a level of education that we think is worthy of a high school diploma. Why shouldn't that test be a requirement for a high school diploma, an actual diploma, not you attended, a a you graduated diploma?
4: Because the test uh, lifts up those who are good test takers. It harms our ELL learners. It harms our students on an IEP. It harms our students who are dyslexic. It harms our students who uh, do best when they articulate the diversity of their intelligence orally. So the reason that we seek to eliminate this one-time passage of a test score is because it does not honor the diversity of intelligence that we see within all of our students.
14: And I'll also jump in bill and add that part of the issue is that with this high stakes uh, test, it, it uh, really perverts the kind of curriculum that gets taught throughout the throughout the years that students have in school that we have to focus uh, our educators focus very narrowly on these three areas or are pushed to focus on these three tests that are coming up that they have to pass by 10th grade. And so this will allow us to look at a fuller curriculum and a fuller way of evaluating how our students and our schools are doing.
1: Okay. I'm confused about one part of this. I understand that Massachusetts is one of the very few states that actually still has passing the standardized test in Massachusetts, the MGAS, uh, as a graduation requirement. We, We are in a tiny minority of states that do that. Let me stop there for one second. Is that right? That's true. Uh, Eight. Eight states. All right. Well, not all right, but thank you for confirming that. What I would like to know is what will take – well, no, I want to ask a different question. Why do we need a ballot initiative? Why doesn't the state legislature just say enough is enough with this? We'll we'll, We'll join the rest of the world. Why do we need to put this
4: on the ballot? You know, good question. I will say, um, about three weeks ago, Max and I had the opportunity to have a conversation with the Secretary of Education for the United States. There is recognition that we are over testing our students, and it is time to transition to a different model. Uh, We've had conversation with the Secretary of Education here in Massachusetts, We've had conversation with the Commissioner of Education, uh, and there is, excuse me, an understanding that we need to begin to uh, transition uh, into a more authentic assessment system.
1: But where's the legislature in all this? Why do we need to have a ballot initiative? and an enormous campaign and a lot of money spent, why doesn't the legislature say, right, this doesn't make any sense anymore. Let's abolish MCAS well, as a requirement. As a, as and the
14: legislature could do it tomorrow, Bill, and we are yeah. hopeful to, and we have been advocating through something called the Thrive Act, which will be heard on October 4th and is co-sponsored as led by our own senator in Western Mass, Joe Cummerford, and that will be heard and that would eliminate this high-stakes testing graduation requirement. Max, and I
2: just want to add that, that listeners can write to the legislators and say, please do something about eliminating this
1: graduation requirement. We just have a minute left. What needs to be done? Assuming the legislature does nothing, again, on this topic, which demands action, what needs to be done What you need to do? And we need a, really about a half a minute answer to this. What needs to be done to get this on the ballot for 2024? Deb or Max, either one. Max, you go. We
14: will will be gathering signatures. We will need to gather about 75,000 signatures across the state in the fall between September and November. That will then put it before the legislature very clearly and make them say, yes, we're signing on to this, or we will then go to the ballot in November of 2024. So we hope that the legislature will do right, the governor will lead on it, and that we will um, develop a far better assessment system for our students in our schools.
1: Max Page is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. Deb McCarthy is the vice president of the MTA. Thank you both so very much for being with us today. We really appreciate your time and insights.
0: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
7: Get takeout? Save 30%. Get candles? Or hit the links? Save 30%. Dog grooming? Outdoor recreation? Burritos? Save 30%. The Shop 30 Store. Full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were going to buy anyway. The Shop 30 Store. Open right now at whmp.com.
2: Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Broadside Bookshop is a community-minded, woman-owned, independent bookstore in downtown Northampton, where you can browse to your heart's content. For book lovers, Broadside is home away from home. You can order virtually any book on the Broadside website and pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. If you love books, you'll love Broadside
14: Bookshop.
3: My partners had told me I should get my knee replaced. I was in my 40s and I decided that I wouldn't do that.
14: That's orthopedic surgeon Dr. John Herzog, who found regenerative medicine years ago and became a believer. It changed my life around. It
3: improved me to a point where I was able to jog again.
14: That's when Dr. Herzog switched his focus from surgery to helping his patients with natural biologics. I've treated at least 5,000 patients.
0: I believe your body has everything it needs to heal itself.
14: Today you'll find Dr. Herzog at QC Kinetics, the nation's leader in this exciting field of medicine that can give lasting pain relief with no downtime, no drugs, and no surgery. I have patients
3: coming up to me that I did 10 years ago saying, you know, Doc, my elbow's still working great. I'm playing tennis three days a week. Call QC Kinetics now to explore alternative ways to deal with your pain. It's a free consultation.
11: Call QC Kinetics, 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. And this is Artbeat with
1: Donabel Cassis, who has with her and us today a very special guest. Donabel Cassis. The microphone is
7: yours. Thank you, Bill. Good morning. Terry Junor is a musician, visual artist, writer, and educator. Her visual work includes abstract and figurative fiber sculptures and watercolor. Illustrations. Her hand stitched fiber sculptures are carried by the National Museum of African American History and Culture and also in private collections. And we are so lucky because we can see some of her work at the East Hampton City Arts Gallery this month. Terry Jeannard joins us this morning. Welcome. Good morning. Thank Good you. Morning. Terry, your show is titled This Long Arc, which is inspired. A statement by Dr. Martin Luther King. Please tell us about that statement.
15: Well, the statement uh, is that the uh, moral arc is long, but it leads toward justice. And I got inspired by the moment um, that when uh, when I was invited to do this show, I, I began thinking about. Um, my life, which has been fairly long, and I thought about some of the lessons that I had learned, and really what, I, um, what came to me was progress and how I have progressed and what I've been taught by my family about progress and how to stay the course. And um, I, I think for this show, really, my focus is on breaking patterns and that's been um i think that was an early lesson that i learned from my parents that in order to move forward to in order to make progress you need to do a lot of self-reflection and breaking from old patterns that don't serve you anymore uh old associations that don't serve you anymore Uh, all of that and in order to move forward. So that really was the impetus for for my thinking behind the show.
1: Can you tell us what the show looks like in a a summary fashion? And then I want to ask a second question, which is how are we so lucky to have you in East Hampton and the show in East Hampton now?
15: (laughs) Everybody has to live somewhere.
7: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, well, let's, I mean, this, these next questions will tell us about how, what the work looks like. So, yeah. um, Terry, yeah. you were born and raised in the Bronx into a Puerto Rican and Jamaican family. How does your childhood memory inform your work? Which, you know, we'll be seeing fiber sculptures here at ECA Gallery.
15: Yeah, thank you. Um, in a way, just in the way that I just referenced my family and some of the things that I've learned from them, My memories, my visceral memories are really affect the work I do and I loved my childhood and I grew up in the uh, late 50s, early 60s in New York City in the Bronx and the people around me were were progressive people. They had come from the islands and all of their associations were people from the west indies and the spanish-speaking islands and these were people who had come to to uh live better more creative more uh freer lives and were up for adventure this was a time yeah i'm talking about they came in the 20s and uh all of those folks came with a lot of their dress habits and their uh cultural you know information from the islands and it's vibrant and it's so in in answer to your question about what it looks like it's colorful and that's what i really um that's what i really came uh to the show with is that information about lots of color
7: Mm. well you also speak you speak about color textures rhythms shapes patterns energy I mean just the descriptors alone kind of give this source of energy you talk about gold teeth lime green Sunday church hats with plumes sculpted hairstyles I mean you take all of this that the the visions the smells the sounds and then you almost sort of transmute them into these fiber sculptures which I hear are mostly recycled cotton fabrics Yes. Um, just describe to us a little bit about the process of how you make these sculptures.
15: I uh, I went into this with the idea that, in the past, most of the work I've done with fiber has been figurative so i make these dolls i make Mm. them and they're ornate and there's lots of uh information in it there's i use um found objects i use natural materials i use antiques i love old uh pieces of jewelry and uh you know a lot of stuff and for this show i was saying before about it was important to me to break some of my own patterns. And so I decided I was going to go abstract. So all of the work is um, shapes and forms and I'm twisting things and I'm pulling things and I'm wrapping things and I'm sewing. But uh, I, I do have one row of about 18 small dolls, but they're made in a totally different way than I usually make them so i I was going for i was challenging myself
7: now you also are a musician and you know you're going to be doing a special sound installation um during the art walk which is this friday well not this friday but next week august 10th from 5 to 8 p.m just tell us briefly what will we get to look forward to for that part of the art walk
15: I'm a violinist and composer, and uh, that's my training. And um, so I have recorded my violin on three and four tracks. And uh, Warren Ammerman, who is the sound engineer, has gone and really played with the sound. And what I'm doing is interpreting the sculptures into sound. And that's what you'll hear.
7: Well, Terry Jenner, you must see this show. It's called This Long Art List long arc fiber sculptures by Terry Jenner at the East Hampton City Arts Gallery through the end of this month, but definitely check out the sound installation on August 10th. Thank you so much for joining us today, Terry. Thank you so much.
1: And Terry, is the show up now? It is. So we can go starting today?
15: Well, it's open on Wednesdays and Friday from 12 to 2. Okay. Short hours, but yeah.
1: Thank you very much. Make
7: the choice to go.
15: Thank
1: you. Thank you both very much. This has been Heartbeat on Talk the Talk.
4: The beat goes on. The beat goes on.
11: Drums keep
0: pounding. Find local news and local talk
7: for the Valley. If we didn't go for this project the cost to repair the schools is estimated at 80 million and we don't get help with that so this vote is the absolutely the smartest financial choice and it's getting a building that we desperately need for our educators and for our students
0: where the heart of the pioneer valley lives 1015 and 1400 WHMP news information
14: and the arts Would you like a better world? It's as easy as grabbing a hammer and building a home. Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity builds strength, stability, and self-reliance through affordable homeownership in Hampshire and Franklin County. It's not a handout, it's a hand up. Habitat homes are built with donations of material, land, and services. Future homeowners and volunteers create a partnership with Habitat for Humanity to build a home, strengthen our neighborhoods, and create a legacy for our community. Help transform the world. Volunteer and support Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity.
11: PVHabitat.org.
14: WHMP Northampton and WRSIH.
11: I've WHMP.
0: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP.
2: And welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And um, it's so nice to get together with Bill Newman. He's had a couple of days off. It's really nice to be in the studio with you, Bill. Uh, and it's especially nice because um, uh, we have with us Claire Higgins, the Executive Director of Community Action at Pioneer Valley. She's been uh, performing that function for about 12 years uh, following uh, her illustrious career as the sixth-term mayor of Northampton. And before that, a couple of decades as an early childhood educator, which is very relevant to what we want to talk to Claire Higgins about today. The U.S. is facing an ever-growing... Crisis in the arena of child care, and as uh, executive director of Community Action Pioneer Valley, Claire, you are um, right in the thick of things in terms of providing child care for people who need it. So, um, tell me, Head Start. I've been reading about right. what's going on with Head Start. Could you update us, please? Sure.
1: And could you get to the point which was I left off in a newspaper article. I didn't completely understand, which is there are going to be there is going to be a reduction in the number of uh, places that are available for kids in Head Start, but then there was a somewhat optimistic statement from you I believe, Claire yeah. Higgins, that it's actually okay. Can well, you, can, can you yeah. clear that up for me?
16: Sure, and, and thanks for um, having me here to, to talk about this and what's going on in the early education world. Um, the and Just to correct the record, I was an early educator teaching for about seven or eight years, and then I was an administrator in various places. So, um, so we haven't been able to hire teachers since before the pandemic. It was difficult. During the pandemic, it became impossible. And that has is due to a lot of reasons, but really primarily due to the rate of pay that we could pay people to do this critical work. Um, we were just not paying people enough. And so we had empty teaching slots across our region, which meant that children weren't in classrooms. So while we reduced the number of, they call them slots in the early education world, spaces for kids, they were spaces that weren't full anyway because we couldn't fill them because we didn't pay people enough. So we asked the Head Start folks in Washington, could we reduce the number of children that we care for but keep the same amount of money so that we could pay our teachers more money? And that's what they said we could do. And that's what we're doing. So we're, 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 we're gonna be, able to be fully staffed so that we're not an empty promise to people with a number of slots on the books but not able to fill them
1: right okay so can you just uh, go down that path a little further sure. for us what does that mean for the number okay. of kids who are going to be no no, no gonna...
16: children are being displaced because we didn't have them in care
1: because because we couldn't enroll them because i didn't have the teachers and those same... So the, the good news is no kids are, who are... No, in, being, absolutely. On, no. the, on the other hand, there. I take it there are a lot of kids who needed those slots, but, who needed that... Uh, and,
16: and But we couldn't enroll them because I didn't have teachers to staff those classrooms. And so... So the, it was an empty promise to those families.
1: And that promise still remains unfulfilled.
16: That promise remains unfulfilled, that's correct. But we're now starting from a better base to say, in order to offer care that's real quality care and education we need to pay our teachers more we need to have them be able to stay in the profession and grow and then we need to have children who don't have four or five teachers during the course of a year can you imagine a a parent of a first or second grader being okay with four or five teachers during the course of the year that's what early education kids in early education are experiencing
2: but what about all those underserved kids or unserved kids? Uh, and, f- and
16: what about them? And that's a problem that I can't solve because I don't have access to the printing press or the budget, right? So, yes, as an advocacy point, we should be saying to Head Start, National Head Start at, at, across the country, all of those legislators, please increase the number of Head Start slots. In fact, the House has proposed cutting Head Start not increasing Head Start. The Senate, as usual, is more generous, and, and the Biden budget was more generous. We should be arguing at the state level, increase the pay for, uh, and, and uh, for the amount you pay providers to care for children in the early education slots that you fund, and then we can expand. And in fact, in this budget, there is an increase in the rates at the state level, which will be helpful to us.
2: I would just like, Claire Higgins, for you to describe what we already know to just say it out loud, what kind of hardship does it create for a family sure. when c- their child needs daycare and can't, I mean... Well, they, they have a
16: couple of options. They they find care that may be unlicensed and it might be fine, but it might not be fine, right, that they're paying off the books for, which may mean that they're not eligible for tax credits. I'm not totally up to date on that. There is, uh, there is some tax benefit if you are paying for child care. They find a neighbor or a relative to care for the child, which is, you know, if you have people that can do that and you trust them, that's great. Um, And and even now, if you are eligible for care, but you have an overnight shift or a weekend shift, we're not the place for you anyway. So we have a lot of work left to do. This is already an unfunded resource, underfunded resource, and there's still a vast amount of uh, unmet need. So it's the same struggle we have in everything that we're trying to change. You try to do the best you can for the people that you are currently serving while you try to change the future f- for the next generation, right? Like yeah. that's what we're trying to do.
1: So uh, Claire Higgins, when you talk about the vast amount of unmet need, can you give us some sense of what percentage of the uh, population that needs childcare uh, is actually able to access it? And I don't have that
16: number at the top of my head. I, it is an available number. Um, they, uh, various points, there's been discussions about the waiting list
2: in the state, but I don't think it's a valid number. Um, but I would like to point this out, Bill, in, in answer to that. It doesn't answer your question, but it is staggering. It makes my jaw drop. That According to the Department of Education, um, the economic toll of child care from 2018 to 2022 on people, collectively, they say, it, w- it more than doubled from $57 billion to $122 billion. And notwithstanding the fact that it costs are so much greater, they're serving far fewer children, an estimated 71% of the number of children who need daycare. Those are working families that we're talking That's about right. that can't and afford to work.
16: And I'm looking for, there is a number about the number of Head Start um, slots that per region, we barely scratch the surface in terms of how many that we can provide.
1: What ages are we talking about? Birth to five.
16: Birth to kindergarten.
1: And these are working people? Well,
16: in Head Start, you have to be income eligible, and then we help with the family with identifying um, supports that they need and help them if, if find education and training, et cetera. That's, uh, Head Start is a, a, a separate track, in a way, from the early education and care funding that comes from the feds through the state we blend the two together so a family may start with us work on educational goals or other goals get a job and be able to stay with us it, start maybe in a half day you know in a half day s- space and then move into a full day space as they um, change what they're doing in their life
1: you're the executive director of community action what is the and this is the correct term the catchment area the area hampshire you serve hampshire and franklin
16: county but for head start we also serve Westfield, West Springfield, and Agawam,
1: and the offices, the physical offices of Community Action are where in,
16: at, at Vernon Street in Northampton. But we have s- twelve sites throughout the region,
1: and those sites are
16: daycare sites
1: or well, it's, or, it's,
16: it's it, they're early, day, early education we, sites, early education and care sites funded through both Head Start money and early education and care money,
1: and those are both in Franklin and New Hampshire County, Franklin
16: and Hampshire County, and in Hampden County, it's Head Start funded through Head Start money.
1: You know, it's
2: so interesting, Claire Higgins. Uh, Two weeks ago, my uh, son and his wife brought up their two-year-old and eight-month-old, and I just watched how difficult it is, how full-time it is to watch a two-year-old scurry about and at the same time be trying to do some productive activities with them. It's a really hard job. (laughs) It's just... uh, uh, Right. Thinking of a real early childhood educator not being paid enough, it's a demanding, exhausting, and fulfilling job. So that's so interesting,
16: because as I was driving here, I was thinking about this. People don't remember very well how crazy their life was when their child was birthed to five, because it was so
1: exhausting. Right? Bill, you're just coming back from childcare, <laughs> right? I'm fully on board with this one. Uh And it reminds me of the statements about why people actually don't remember traumatic (laughs) events because you just put it out of your mind. It's like five years and you you get the end. They don't give you a diploma and say, yes, you survived the first five years of your child's life.
16: Congratulations.
1: Everyone's healthy and well. Great. Um, But you put it aside because you just do what you have to do to keep the kids happy and healthy.
16: Well, actually, the things that you're doing to keep that child happy and healthy are the – Building blocks for them for to be then ne- successful in school and in life, like the routines that you establish with them, the surety that they're going to get food on, an, uh, 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 they're going to get nurtured, the informal teaching that parents do all the time. What is that letter? What is? Tell me about this. How many cookies do you want? I'm only giving you two. All that stuff is, is the building. I blocks. know the
1: answer to what the letter is. I just did that for hours on end. That's over the right. Last week.
16: So, but that those are the building blocks for learning right? Those are that kind of early literacy, early numeracy, and creating a safe environment for a child so that it's safe to learn. Children who don't feel safe, just like grownups, don't learn, right? So that nurturing environment is what creates that they, uh, the child who then enters into the next phase of life happy and ready to learn. Uh, most, uh, the vast majority of brain development happens in the first five years of life, Right? That's all those synapses are being grown and pruned and, and nurtured in order for that child to go to the next much more cognitively based. I'm not saying this right, and some scientist is going to call in, but you know, school based curriculum. The, the curriculum of birth to five is, is the curriculum that allows children to learn when they get to school age. It, it's early education and care, and the care that parents give and that child care providers give is intrinsically linked with education, right? They are both the same. And honestly, I wish they would call element call it elementary education and care because if the teachers don't offer that care as well, children don't learn as well.
2: And I just want to circle back to where we started when you were talking about the pay that, that right. is available for these I mean, unlike a lot of professions... It's love of children that motivates right. a lot of early childhood ed- right. educators. And then they get into the sort of science and uh, the kinds of things that you were talking about, the right. uh, uh, structure that a child needs. But it, they really love their children. So, so many of them want to go into it and are willing at first to accept too little money. Right. To, and yet, what they're doing is so important that. to our future as a society. It's, uh, if ever there's a place we should be investing, it's in our child's future. If
16: you think about what we don't invest in kids right now, right? Like, uh, there's a, a scientist, a, a, an educator scientist at GL talks about children developing in webs of relationships, right? And the, and if every time we break one of those links, it is affirmatively damaging to children. And children who are, are moving from housing to housing to moving from school to school, that impl- implica- has implications for their ability to learn and develop both socially, emotionally, and cognitively, right? And so... With this downsizing of the number of spaces we had, we're able to build a solid staff so our young people, the children who are in our care, can build those solid relationships for their early in the early years.
1: So, Claire Higgins, go back to this question that you were just, just touching on again, which is the number of slots, yep. that's the number of positions for kids that right. are available for pam- families who need uh, right. daycare, child care early education services, all of that. Is there a waiting list now? If sure. someone is listening yeah. saying, I really need the service, they where should, do I go, what do I do? They should, What's the answer?
16: They should call Community Action and get their name on the waiting list. We have a waiting list, but we people's lives change. They move, they change jobs, whatever it is, so people can get on the waiting list. But the other thing that you should do, and I'm going to not push the parents who are desperate for care as much as I'm going to push those of the rest of us. If you're an employer who's desperate for workers, Push your legislator to expand the amount of spaces that there are for children to be in care. If you're uh, if you're a, a grandparent who really loves your grandkids, push that. Push your legislator both on the state and federal level to expand the care
1: for early for children in early education. Which brings up this question: Is there any movement afoot for employers who are desperate in some situations to have new employees? For the employers to create daycare, childcare, early childhood education in a specific uh, business or specific businesses?
16: You know, I actually think the most efficient way to do this is to actually for people to pay their taxes so that we can do it in a universal way. We don't expect employers to provide elementary education. If we think birth to five is really important, we should do it as a community, as a society, rather than expecting employers. And, look, many of the parents that work for us are working for, for um, 7 eleven, seven eleven, or Friendly you – know, well, I guess Friendly's gone now, huh? But, you know, the, uh, <laughs> the dollar store, whatever those places are, that they're not going to start childcare. We just right. want them to pay their taxes so that we can do it as a – and it's that – Open question Is early education and care, birth to five, a common good? We decided that elementary and secondary education is a common good. The governor just said through this, her budget that she signed, that community college for a certain group of people is a common good. What about birth to five? I'm just going to remind you that that's when the most brain development (laughs) happens, and it's the one that we're leaving to sort of catch as catch can.
2: We are talking with Executive Director of the Community Action of Pioneer Valley, Claire Higgins. And by the way, that's uh if if you need child care and you're interested in pursuing it, call Community Action of Pioneer Valley. We're going to be right back and continue our conversation right after this.
0: More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Tag your it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Tom Hartman program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to three right here on WHMP. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP.
16: (laughs)
7: What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Ah, summer in New
1: England, and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries, basil, and tomatoes, an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats, sausage, lots of grilling ideas. And in the co-op cheese department, get fresh mozzarella for your caprese salad.
4: River Valley
5: Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome.
1: Art Walks,
17: Holyoke
5: Mills, cars and coffee. What's going on? A look around the valley with provisions. Arts Walk in Brattleboro, Friday, August 4th. Arts Night Out in East Hampton, Thursday,
17: August 10th. In Northampton, August 11th. Artswalk Walk Greenfield, Friday, August 25th. Get walking. Blues legend Robert Johnson's 97 year old stepsister, Annie Anderson of Amherst, reads from her book, Brother Robert, Growing Up with Robert Johnson. With Blues Banjo by Hubby Jenkins. Saturday, August 26th, The Bombix. Cars and Coffee at the Mill District in North Amherst. Sunday morning, August 20th. Vintage, Custom, and Exotic Cars. Coffee by Futura Coffee Roasters. Cheeses of France. A dive into French cheese culture and history. August 4th. 14th at Provisions, North Amherst. This is Jim Neal with What's Going On, a monthly look around at food and beverage, arts and music, and anything cool.
5: What's Going On is presented by Provisions, wine, beer, cheese. Free tastings Friday, 4 to 7, at the foot of Crafts Avenue in downtown Northampton, in the Mill District in North Amherst, and at the Longmeadow Shops.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP.
2: Thank you. Stay on the mic. And we are back with Claire Higgins, the Executive Director of Community Action of Pioneer Valley. And we are talking about um, what I consider to be an ever growing childcare crisis. And um, so you were talking about, could you just briefly describe for those who don't know how Head Start works, how people get in touch with it, what goes on at Head Start?
16: So Head Start is a education and care program from children. We have slots for infants, toddlers, and preschoolers, meaning spaces for infants, toddlers, and preschoolers, where we there's classroom experience for children. We feed children nutritious breakfast and lunch. There's um, support for the parents. There's um, educational support for children who may have special needs. It's a, f- a comprehensive program of services for children and families. We... We m- match that with the st- state funding we get, that the state gets from the federal government for, for, through the Child Care and Development Block Grant, to create full day, full year spaces for children, so that their children can work or go to school, and 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 do the things they need to do to care for their family.
2: And do you have to be financially eligible there, in order? Yes, to take Head Start.
16: Ha- of it? If you're if you're on, I, I, and I'm going to get this wrong, but if if the person who is the parent is on um, SNAP, then there's an... El- Supplemental helps, Nutrition Assistance. Right, formerly known as food stamps. Um, that helps people, that helps determine their eligibility. And then in, in the early care and education world, you come in at a, a pretty low level, but then you can stay as you move up the economic ladder, and there's a, co- a fee for children who are getting that full-day, full-year um, support um, that it, And that's in changing now, so I'm not, I'm not going to get the number right, but the fees are low. They amount to four, uh, 7% of the parents' income, which for some families is very, very low.
1: Do you train your teachers, or are they...?
16: It's a mix. So some p- teachers come to us with high school diplomas and start as assistants, and we work with them to uh, train them to become um, teacher-qualified and then lead teacher-qualified. Some people come to us, lead teacher-qualified... In this state, that can be with or without a college degree, but we are moving more and more to college degrees. And I think over 50% of our teachers now have college degrees, although I might be wrong about that, our lead teachers. And we work with people to identify a path for them to go to school and get those credentials, and the state helps with that. The state has programs
2: also to help people get their credentials. Uh, Claire Higgins, I ask you this question not as the executive director. Uh,
16: they always call me Claire Higgins in case you're confusing me with the other Claire in the room. <laughs> just, I just want to make that point. Okay.
1: And if there's another Claire <laughs> no, <she> it's <laughs> because it
2: seems
16: so untoward to me. Higgins. Well, that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. Well, that, people have done that to me.
2: So. <laughs> director Higgins. <laughs> that's okay. I ask te- you this I'm question you guys. not as a director, but as a as a, somebody who has been an educator, an early. Uh, educate, early childhood educator, and uh, a friend who teaches preschool in the community in which I live said to me, the most important thing we do is not uh, teaching how to read, is not uh, even the structure that we try to impose and play. It's the socialization. It's yeah. kids yeah. playing, learning how to play, learning how to share, learning how to respect other people's space. Is Is that your experience? I too? think
16: there's... I think that's right. Like, I don't know any sixteen-year-olds that don't know their colors. Okay, so as a curriculum,
2: and they've all been toilet
16: trained, and they've all been. To- I, I I sincerely hope so for their parents. Watch it, Claire. Yeah, but okay. uh, but the idea of being able to get along well with others, to to be able to be a social creature and be able to resolve your problems with others in a in a nonviolent way, the roots of that are in early education, right? And that's where we do that. That's where that kind of problem solving happens all the time. I used to say to teachers that I was supervising, you're installing, bla- installing breaks, right? Mm. Like I want this. I could grab it or there's a way for me to get that. That is a socially acceptable way, right? I can. And so that kind of social interaction, social modeling, social uh, learning is really impor- important birth to five. And- That's when kids are, you know, need empathy so that they can develop empathy. And if they have different teachers every other week, they're not, it doesn't feel safe enough. They don't feel like anybody's empathetic, so they're not developing
1: those things. Okay, so Claire Higgins. Yes, I, 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 I love I, that they do that. Because okay. <laughs> I'm getting old and I'm not and quite try, sure who try, I am. trying okay. to remind you. And, 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 you and call a, him and, Bill and, Newman and, and, when you Bill reply. Newman. Yes, Bill Newman. Yeah. <laughs> okay, <it's> Claire Higgins. <laughs> I'd like to go back to what you described as the, as the arc of your career, which started in early childhood education. Yeah. Took some time out to be a city councilor, which you did at the same time, and mayor, which you... Took uh, six terms to uh, perform that function for six terms, and now you're back in early childhood education. And I'm wondering why that, for you, is so fulfilling.
16: That's a really good question. And I'm—I mean, I'm in a larger field than early education alone, but I've always felt that, you know, that early education has the power to change the way societies think about. Their children, and each other. Right? We look at the highly industrial nations in this in this world that have have early education care as a right. Honestly, they are treating each other better than we're treating each other. Right? Uh, And you have to think about early education. In you can't think about it in a vacuum. I've also been intensely um, dedicated to housing as a piece of, of what we need to do for people, because children need stability. We should be thinking about having children be able to be born and go to this, raised in the same town because those long-term relationships in early education, in schools, in neighborhoods, make for stable adults. Children who are, live in 15 different places during the course of their childhood, that for some children can create resilience, for other children is traumatic. So how do we create communities that are nurturing? How do we start with early education, move into public schools, think about housing that is available, and how do we then create communities that can be successful because everybody's in in it together as a... I'm I'm sorry I'm not being more articulate, but I feel
2: like... I think you're being powerfully articulate. The
16: stability of communities makes a difference in the success of everyone in those communities, not just the lowest-income people, but everybody in those communities.
2: That's true, but the people who are more affluent, I mean, they say money can't buy happiness. It just removes barriers. And for those people who have barriers like... That's right. ...inability to find adequate housing and, and nutrition for your child, those kind of barriers have long impact absolutely impact. but I can get,
16: I can name kids which I won't do on the radio that I know started in this community and were able to start as a child and Start or early or an early education and care program graduated from our high school and are successful adult because they were able to stay in a place where people got to know them and nurture them right the the the, the, the turnover in our elementary schools as parents get their housing changes their needs change their their need for housing changes, for instance, the family grows and they can't find anything, all those things are not, affirmatively not necessarily that great for kids. Mm. Sometimes they are, but it's a real challenge. And, you know, this increase in homeless families is a real, those children, that's harmful if if that kind of lasts for a long time. So,
1: Last question. Is a lot of this precipitated, this lack of, Attention that we pay to childcare because our society has failed to keep up with the fact that parents have to work. We don't have parents at home. Anymore. Yes,
16: and and, and during the, during yeah. this is a longer conversation about the, fi- the, the 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 you know the change in the economy in 1980 where wages stopped growing while wealth began to grow precipitously. Oh, uh, Reaganomics, uh, you're talking uh, uh, about. I'm just I'm not naming names, but it it starts with an R, and if you look at if you look at what that has done,
1: starts with an R, and it's not Roosevelt. Right, <laughs>
16: but the other thing is women in the workforce is affer- is not affirmatively good if you build the structures to you know. A- And and let me just say, one parent, two parents in the workforce is affirmatively good. If you build the structures that, that support the family, that can be affirmatively good for society. Again, point to the other major, Western major industrial countries. They have that. It's affirmatively good. They didn't have Reaganomics. They figured out how to make it work.
2: And we're all trying to figure out how to make it work. But what we know is we need community action in Pioneer Valley and people like you. Claire Higgins.
16: Well, I work with amazing people. The team in our early, um, early Head Start and Early Learning programs are just incredible. The work they do with kids is incredible. Their dedication to making this work, even during the pandemic when turnover was high and children were, we were open, you know, as of July in that first year because parents needed to go back to work. They are dedicated human beings that want to make this work. We should at least pay them enough money so that they can pay their rent.
2: I can't think of a better place to leave it. Thank you so much, Claire, for coming in. We're going to be right back, and we're going to be talking about First Light once again and what it's doing to our beloved Connecticut River right after this.
13: It slowly go by And feed them on your dreams
14: The one they picked The
6: one you know by don't you
4: ever ask them why If they told you you would die. So just look at them and sigh And know they love
17: you
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
10: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The Amherst Pelham Education Association is renewing its appeal for the school committee to launch an investigation into Superintendent Michael Morris. The committee issued a statement saying while the APEA supports an impartial and independent investigation into the Title IX complaint around anti-LGBTQA issues at Amherst Regional Middle School, the union is calling for a separate inquiry into the failures of Dr. Michael Morris's leadership. Morris, meanwhile, had outlined a plan to address these issues. However, the committee says the issue lies with the administration's lack of responsiveness and is rejecting the implication that anti-LGBTQ bias is systemic within the school. After serving almost 10 years in prison, Daniel Tompkins of Orange may have his convictions overturned due to ineffective legal counsel. Tompkins was convicted of causing a vehicle crash in Bernardston in 2007 that resulted in the deaths of 21-year-old Heather Buffum and 25-year-old Melissa Duff. However, on July 27th, a judge granted a new trial. The Northwestern DA's office has filed an appeal. The pre-application period for Community Preservation Act funds in Greenfield is now open. The Preservation Committee will be allocating approximately $300,000 for projects that enhance affordable housing, historic preservation, and outdoor recreation open space. Project proposals need to be in by September 15th. From there, eligible projects will need to submit complete applications by November 15th.
11: Sun cloud mixed today. Chance for showers in the morning and then showers and thunderstorms likely in the afternoon. In fact, prime time for any heavy downpours would be 3 p.m. to 8 p.m. Watch out for flooding and damaging wind, a high of 76 to 80. Evening showers, then clearing out overnight, a low of 58 to 64. Mostly sunny tomorrow, a high of 80 to 84. I'm 22 News Storm Team meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP.
13: Find local news and local talk for the Valley which says we need to appeal to the wealthy white people of our region because the marginalized people do not have money, which is true, but as we know, that's what happens when you have centuries of policies that are oppressive, that are racist.
0: Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts.
11: Do you know a woman of impact? Nominate her now for the Business West Women of Impact Awards, honoring women who are respected for accomplishments in their professional life, who give back to the community, and are sought out as advisors and mentors. Business West is looking for the 2023 Women of Impact. Help Business West discover them. Go to businesswest.com to nominate a woman you know making an impact in the community. The deadline to nominate is September 5th.
8: Say goodbye to the incandescent light bulb, which has been around since Thomas Edison. The U.S. government has officially banned its sale in favor of energy-efficient alternatives such as LED lights, which use 75 percent less energy and are said to last up to 25 times longer than incandescents. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration has opened an investigation into complaints about Tesla steering issues in the 2023 Model 3 sedan and Model Y crossover. The agency said it has heard from owners who complained they lost steering control. Here's some good news for off-road enthusiasts who have missed the Land Cruiser since Toyota retired the brand three years ago. It's back. Toyota has announced the Land Cruiser will return for the 2024 model year with a significant design refresh and a lower sticker price. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz
0: Eisenberg. WHMP.
2: And welcome back to Talk the Talk. We are... um... Uh, we're going to be talking about the Connecticut River Defenders, the assault by first light at Northfield Mountains uh, Power Station on the Connecticut River has been uh, the subject of a lot of concern. We have with us today Fergus Marshall and Teresa Turner, who are both um, very much concerned about the future uh, of the Connecticut River. So let me start with you, Fergus. What is the Connecticut River Defenders'
17: Well, the Connecticut River Defenders is a organization that we started back in April of 2022 to bring attention to the ongoing onslaught of what First Light is doing with their pump storage unit on the Connecticut River of churning up and spitting out millions of fish.
2: So what is First Light?
17: First Light is a multinational giant organization that has been buying up hydro and dam facilities all in the United States and abroad.
2: It's Canadian. It is
17: Canadian-owned, yes. And uh, they own the First Light uh, Northfield pumping station in Northfield, Massachusetts, where they suction up um, millions and millions of gallons of water to, to put on the, in the reservoir that's on the top of the mountain, and they discharge that when the prices are high to get a high price and when demand is high, and they reap great, great uh, benefits from this, and it's a very, very inefficient system, um, and it kills lots of aquatic
2: creatures. Well, let's go there. I want to follow up with that with uh, Teresa Turner, who is also a Connecticut River Defender. Teresa, um, why are you so concerned about the impact the Connecticut River? What do you think the impact is, and why, does it, uh, why are you so passionate about stopping the assault on the Connecticut?
6: Well, I joined the – or was a founding member of the Connecticut River Defenders more than a year ago because I'm really concerned about the damage that's being done to wildlife in the river, to all kinds of life in the river, and in the larger watershed that the 410-mile Connecticut River, that's just the mileage in the U.S., there's also part of the watershed in Quebec. So this whole watershed is suffering a great deal from the operations of First Light. And in the immediate area in in Western Mass, we have the largest perpetrator of this damage, which is first light, as Fergus has just mentioned. And what happens when the very vast amount of water every second is sucked up into that man-made huge hole at the top of Green uh, Northfield Mountain is that millions of fish and fish larvae and um, eggs are swept through the one-mile lift up to the top of the mountain from the Connecticut River, and they're all ground up in three turbines. Then when First Light wants to reap profits, and this happens at least four times a week on average, they let the water down very forcefully, and again, all of that water is ground up, is is, is churned up, and anything in it is killed, and it's spit out. And what happens is the electricity, about, one, about two-thirds of the electricity that was used to put the water a mile up the mountain, about, um, you know, some more electricity is generated. Actually, a vast quantity of electricity is generated when the water comes down the mountain and smashes into the Connecticut River again. And in that process, a huge amount of fossil fuel and nuclear-generated electricity is wasted. About a third more electricity is used to put the water up than is generated when the water comes down. And this whole operation is unnecessary, this wasting of fossil fuel and nuclear-generated electricity in the quantity that really could provide all the needs for a number of small cities and towns in New England.
1: I was a little bit confused about one aspect of what you just said. I'd like to clarify it, if that would be okay with you, Teresa Turner. And it's this. How much of the energy that is produced by the water flowing down is used in pumping the water up? Is that, is that question coherent? Is that That's clear? a good
6: question, yeah. That's the key question. What, it's, a, it's about 34% more on average. more energy is used, and it's dirty energy, but it would be the same objection if it were clean energy. It's dirty energy. It's used to put the water up that one-mile lift, and it's stored up there, and that's what we refer to as pumped pumped water energy storage. So when the water comes down, it produces significantly less electricity, about one-third less electricity, than is used to put it up so it's extremely costly and and inefficient electricity as as was mentioned and it's very dirty electricity because the atmosphere as we know is not just heating it's boiling the terrible global heat wave that is still ongoing which has affected 80 percent of the u.s population with um, extreme heat warnings that that Fossil fuel energy, that electricity um, generated by fossil fuel, is killing us on a massive scale globally through global boiling now, not just global chaos, global heating chaos, but global boiling chaos. And as a result, we're getting a very dirty electricity, uh, fossil fuel heavy, fossil fuel concentrated electricity. On a, on a daily and weekly basis, and it's completely unnecessary go, go. I, understand I
1: understand how this makes no sense from an environmental point of view. I got that. what I also don't what I don't understand is how this makes any sense from an economic point of view. It costs a lot of money to purchase the energy or use the energy to push the water up to pump the water up the mountain. Um, and then I assume somehow they sell what is The energy that's produced by the same water rushing down the mountain for more, but how does this economics? How do they make money on this? Why is this viable and good for First Light? Fergus Marshall. Yeah, 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 I can speak to that. Um, First Light is
17: in this for the money. They they are able to buy the energy off the grid when prices are low, when there's low demand, and that's when they pump at, at night, for example. At nighttime, yes. Or other times when it's low demand. And they pump the water up to the top of this mountain reservoir where it's held until there's demand. When the demand is high. And then they release that water down and spin the turbines, creating more electricity. The only problem is that it's using thirty percent more energy to put killing and and killing killing, and killing all the aquatic life. life. Now in in this in two thousand twenty three we're using 19th century technology here to do this. And lithium-ion batteries today, they they require about, uh, at most, 10% um, inefficiency
2: uh, on their d- charge-discharge cycles. But so this why, is a 34% the, inefficiency. Yeah, it's, it's well, terrible. We, we're going to take a break, but when we come back, Fergus Marshall and and, and Teresa Turner, I want to talk about the relicensing situation. First, light power has filed an application with the uh, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, we call it FERC as an acronym, to relicense this hydroelectric facility we've been talking about, which seems upside down in its inefficiency.
1: Which, as I understand it, is an application for this insanity to go on for another 50 years. Is that right? That's That's true. true. 50 years.
2: That's true. So, FERC is is part of this process of relicensing, Very soon, if it hasn't happened already, they're going to be talking about an environmental analysis, what's called REA, uh, that's part of the relicensing procedure, and we could all play a part. Uh, When we come back, I want to talk to Fergus and Teresa about what we should be doing to input on this relicensing application.
15: In our hearts we'll understand When the river
13: meets the sea Like a flower
0: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
10: Banking with Greenfield Savings Bank is more rewarding than ever with our free YouChoose Rewards. YouChoose is our Debit Cards reward program that rewards you every time you use your GSB Debit MasterCard. YouChoose Rewards is free! And with YouChoose Rewards, you'll earn points that can be redeemed for dining, shopping, traveling, cashback, donations, and more. Link your GSB Debit MasterCard with your mobile wallet, including Apple Pay, Google Pay, Samsung Pay, and PayPal. It's easy to start earning with YouChoose Rewards. Just go to our website and sign up for You Choose Rewards for your GSB Debit Mastercard. It's free. All you need to do is sign up and you'll earn rewards every time you use your GSB Debit Mastercard.
0: You Choose Rewards, the free debit card rewards program that earns you points every time you use your GSB Debit Mastercard. Sign up today at greenfieldsavings.com/youchoose. Greenfield Savings Bank, Member FDIC, Member DIF.
5: You love your car. We all do. It's part of our DNA. If your vehicle gets into an accident, the people to turn to are the collision experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. Fort Hill lets you leave your concerns at the door. They'll fix your vehicle to better than factory standards and deal with your insurance company from start to finish. Fort Hill is locally owned and operated. They're part of the community, and they guarantee the work they do every time. Trust Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9, Amherst, and online at forthillcs.com. For some kids, home isn't a safe place. And in these times, access to trusted adults like
15: teachers and counselors is limited. I'm Kara McElhone, Executive Director of the Children's Advocacy Center of Hampshire County. Our mission is to prevent and end child abuse in our community by providing safety, healing, and justice. The Children's Advocacy Center is open in providing resources to children and caregivers throughout Hampshire County. Please visit us online at cachampshire.org or call 413-570-598.
0: 8-9. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP.
2: We are back talking to Fergus Marshall and Teresa Turner uh, about their efforts as Connecticut River defenders to defend our precious uh, lifeblood, the Connecticut River, uh, and in particular about uh, our uh, contesting the um, relicensing of First Light Power uh, with respect to its uh, pumping station up on Northfield Mountain, Fergus. Um, so, could you talk to us a little bit about who the Connecticut River Defenders are and uh, what people should know about them? How do they contact you?
17: Um, yeah, Connecticut River Defenders are exactly what the what we're what we're saying. We are defending the river and the ecology of the river. And we are addressing the issues um, right now of what First Light and the Northfield uh, pumping station is doing. And recently we had a, held a rally at the entrance to the Northfield facility, stopping and detaining a busload of industry folks from the National Hydropower
2: Association touring the facility so there was a, a conference down in Springfield, I understand,
14: by those
17: folks. folks. That's right, and we we actually there were two buses that came, and one bus got right by us without us being able to, uh, to stop it and to address it. But we did finally manage to stop the second bus after it pushed us about fifty, sixty feet up their driveway, and um, but our hope is to educate these folks as to the horrors that go on with this facility and counter the greenwashing of First Light because these folks on the bus, they were it was a dog and pony show, uh, basically. But uh, if people want to take action, uh, we're urging people to send letters to the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC, and letting them know that they s- strongly oppose the relicensing of Northfield Mountain Pump Storage Station letting them know what a living river means to you. Also write to the Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection and letting them know that our mission is to protect and enhance the Commonwealth's natural resources. Also meetings with the department need to be held in person when this happens and remote in a community in Western Massachusetts near Northfield. Uh, All aspects of the Clean Water Act, sometimes called 401 c need to be upheld including fish and flows passages, no erosion and silt commons, no disruption of native nations, lands, and sacred sites, no death to aquatic life pulled into the deadly turbines, no oil spills, no disrupting of natural downstream, flow of the river and its ecology.
2: So, and all of those are being violated, you say, by this, this process. Um, Teresa Turner, um, yeah. My understanding is that the, that the Massachusetts DEP, which is uh, the Department of Environmental Protection, um, it's obligated to determine whether the things that Fergus was just talking about are in fact being violated. Those protections of the environment and the species, both fauna and uh, and um, uh, flora. Uh, that I went I went dead for a minute there. Um, that this proposed relicensing uh, would cause. We want to make sure that there isn't damage. So people are listening right now, Teresa, and they might be interested in what the Connecticut defenders are doing. How do people get in touch with you? What can they do to participate in stopping this nightmare from continuing?
6: Well, I think that they sh- anybody interested in joining us or um, finding out more about the terrible ongoing destruction of our river and environment could contact our website which is ctriverdefenders.org that's ctriverdefenders.org and there we have a sign up place and if you put your personal information there your email your contact information we'd be glad to add you to our email list and keep you informed about what our actions are. And we have several actions planned, including a public hearing to investigate and document the ways in which First Light is violating the rights of nature. Because this is really a broad uh, intervention by the defenders and our allies to not only shut down First Light, at Northfield Mountain, but also try to promote reparations, that is cleanup, um, funds for decommissioning, which really should be paid for by First Light, and then um, a, a turning over of the vast, vast number of acres, the huge territory along the river that First Light owns, turning it over to... Uh, organizations led by indigenous people as well as their allies for continued reparation uh, recognition but also for the public to enjoy
2: okay Uh, fergus marshall if people want to publicly comment or to FERC and uh sort of lodge their objections to this application how do they do that
17: i think the best thing for them to do would be to go to our website and all the information is is readily available there Um, and, um, I, I encourage people just to get out there and, and, and check out what Northfield is saying in their propaganda and, and ask the questions, is this really a
2: good thing? We only have a minute left. What is the next action that is planned?
17: Um, we're actually not planning anything right at the moment, but But we go to
2: ctriverdefenders.org and actions will always be posted there so people can participate in a protest, a demonstration, or letter writing campaign, whatever you recommend, right? That is correct. And you, they can join the organization if they wish to be active defenders of the Connecticut River. Is that
17: Absolutely. Right? We are always looking for, for allies and members of our, of our group. I um, have a quick, very quick question. We've got to run. When
1: will FERC make this decision?
17: I believe that they have a year to To decide on this, so the time um, to
1: take action is now.
17: The time right is right now, and the time to go to
2: Federal Energy and, Regulatory yes. Commission and let your opinion be known by a public comment is now. Meanwhile, thank you, Fergus Marshall. Thank you, Teresa Turner, for joining us and for everything you're doing to protect our river. And listeners, thank you for joining us today on Talk to Talk. Have a great weekend. Remember, we all try to walk the walk.
17: Did you know that you can prevent domestic and sexual violence? You can Say Something. We all can Say Something. Together, we can do so much. Say Something is the domestic and sexual violence prevention program at Safe Passage. Join a prevention lab to build your skills and find opportunities to Say Something to prevent violence. Join us and help make your community safe and healthy for everyone. Get more information or sign up for a prevention lab at saysomethingnow.org.
10: Are you or someone you know addicted to drugs? Narcotics Anonymous can help. NA has been helping addicts since 1953. We are recovering addicts who meet regularly to help each other stay clean. We offer meetings and services online and in person. To find one of our meetings or to get information on what services are offered, visit www.westernmassna.org or call us at 1-866-NA-HELP-YOU. That's
5: 1-866-624-357.